Blog Talk Radio. Welcome back to Fundamentally Mormon. I'm your host, Mark Lichtenwalter, and this is part of the Zion's Redemption Radio Network. Today we're going to be getting into Chapter 4 of the Gift of Tongues, pages 24 through 30. The uh, title of the chapter is Many Gifts of the Spirit. We'll listen to the reader program first, which is about 15 minutes long. And then I will read it with commentary. During that time, if you have any questions while the recording is going, uh, I will take phone calls off air at 917-889-8827. That's 917-889-8827. After the recorded portion of the show, we will be on live, and we will be able to take phone calls at that point as well. Let's get to that point. This is Many Gifts of the Spirit, Chapter 4 of the Gift of Tongues, pages 24 through 30, which, like I said, is about 15 minutes long. Thank you for listening. Many Gifts of the Spirit, Chapter 4 of Gift of Tongues Pages 24 to 30 The Gift of Tongues is only one of many gifts that God has given to His people. Paul the Apostle listed it along with eight other spiritual gifts and powers. The ancient prophet Moroni mentioned ten in his list of spiritual gifts, see Moroni 10, 9-16. Through a revelation to Joseph Smith, The Lord listed 14 different gifts that could be enjoyed by His people. 1. To some it is given by the Holy Ghost to know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and that He was crucified for the sins of the world. 2. To others it is given to believe on their words, that they also might have eternal life if they continue faithful. 3. And again, to some it is given by the Holy Ghost to know the differences of administration, as it will be pleasing unto the same Lord, according as the Lord will, suiting His mercies according to the conditions of the children of men. 4. And again, it is given by the Holy Ghost to some to know the diversities of operations, whether they be of God, that the manifestations of the Spirit may be given to every man to profit with all. 5. And again, verily I say unto you, to some is given, by the Spirit of God, the word of wisdom. 6. To another is given the word of knowledge, that all may be taught to be wise and to have knowledge. 7. 
and again to submit is given to a faith to be healed. 8. And to others it is given to a faith to heal. 9. And again, to some is given the working of miracles. 10. And to others it is given to prophesy. 11. And to others the discerning of spirits. 12. And again, it is given to some to speak with tongues. 13. And to another is given the interpretation of tongues. 14. And all these gifts come from God, for the benefit of the children of God. 15. And unto the bishop of the church, and unto such as God shall appoint and ordain to watch over the church, and to be elders unto the church, are to have it given unto them to discern all those gifts, lest there shall be any among you professing and yet be not of God. The Lord gives the reason and purpose for these gifts. 16. Wherefore, beware lest ye are deceived, and that ye may not be deceived seeking earnestly the best gifts, always remembering for what they are given. 17. For verily I say unto you, they are given for the benefit of those who love me and keep all my commandments, and him that seeketh so to do, that all may be benefited that seek all that ask of me, that ask and not for a sign that they may consume it upon their lusts. 18. And again, verily I say unto you, I would that ye should always remember, and always retain in your minds what those gifts are, that are given unto the church. 19. For all have not every gift given unto them, for there are many gifts, and to every man is given a gift by the Spirit of God. 20. To some is given one, and to some is given another, that all may be profited thereby. These spiritual gifts are bestowed by the Lord, where they will serve His purposes and strengthen His cause in the Gospel. It is essentially one of the means of edifying, instructing, comforting, and building faith. But the primary purpose of tongues is to convey intelligence and dash the words and the will of God. It is a gift which accompanies the true gospel. It is, therefore, an evidence or a sign which follows the true believers of Christ. The sects of Christendom claim to believe in the word of wisdom and of knowledge by that spirit. But farther they will not go. No healing, no tongues, no prophecy for them. This is one of the things in which the Mormons believe too much in the Bible for the majority of professed Christians. The latter tells us that the Holy Ghost does not do these things now, but that it comes to us powerless, dead, as far as its action on the human family is concerned. Suppose you were to go to a hotel for dinner, and you were to be presented with a bill of fare on which you could read of the delicious viands, and after you had read it you were told that that was all you could have to satisfy your hunger. Would you think such a proceeding consistent? And yet today the Christian world is just as unreasonable in their demands upon the Latter-day Saints. They ask that we be satisfied with the spiritual bill of fare. But this is not in accordance with God's law. 
His gospel always has the same power and efficacy. The gifts of God are blessings bestowed upon the people who honor God's laws and commandments. They seem to be an evidence of His approval upon those who accept the words and ordinances of His true servants. And when Paul laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came upon them and they spake with tongues and prophesied. However, it should be remembered that all gifts are not visible demonstrations of the power of God. Many gifts are not noticeable except to those who receive them. To those who receive them. The prophet Joseph Smith explains, The church is a compact body composed of different members, and is strictly analogous to the human system, and Paul, after speaking of the different gifts, says, Now ye are the body of Christ and members in particular, and God hath set some in the church, first apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, governments, diversities of tongues. Are all teachers? Are all workers of miracles? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? It is evident that they do not, yet are they all members of one body? All members of the natural body are not the eye, the ear, the head or the hand and dash yet the eye cannot say to the ear I have no need of thee, nor the head to the foot, I have no need of thee. They are also many component parts in the perfect machine and dash the one body. And if one member suffer, the whole of the members suffer with it, and if one member rejoice, all the rest are honored with it. These, then are all gifts. They come from God. They are of God. They are all the gifts of the Holy Ghost. They are what Christ ascended into heaven to impart. And yet how few of them could be known by the generality of men. For the manifestation of the Spirit is given unto every man to profit with all. For to one is given, by the Spirit, the word of wisdom, to another, the word of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith, by the same Spirit, to another the gifts of healing, by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the discerning of spirits, to another diverse kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But all these worketh that one and the self same Spirit, dividing to each man severally as he will. There are several gifts mentioned here, yet which of them all could be known by an observer at the imposition of hands? The word of wisdom, and the word of knowledge, are as much gifts as any other, yet if a person possessed both of these gifts, or received them by the imposition of hands, who would know it? Another might receive the gift of faith, and they would be as ignorant of it. Or suppose a man had the gift of healing or power to work miracles, that would not then be known. It would require time and circumstances to call these gifts into operation. Suppose a man had the discerning of spirits, who would be the wiser for it? Or if he had the interpretation of tongues, unless someone spoke in an unknown tongue, he of course would have to be silent. There are only two gifts that could be made visible and dash the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy. These are things that are the most talked about, 
and yet if a person spoke in an unknown tongue, according to Paul's testimony, he would be a barbarian to those present. They would say that it was gibberish, and if he prophesied they would call it nonsense. The gift of tongues is the smallest gift perhaps of the whole, and yet it is one that is the most sought after. There are many reasons for these gifts and dash one of which, according to Urson Pratt, is that they are essential to the church. And they now say and dash, give us all these gifts. If we have a church, let us have inspired apostles and prophets in that church, for without them the saints cannot be made perfect. They are given, also says Paul, not only for the perfecting of the saints, but for the work of the ministry. How can the work of the ministry proceed without apostles and prophets? It cannot proceed. They are given for the edifying of the body of Christ, says the apostle. How can the body of Christ be edified without apostles and prophets, and the gifts mentioned? And again, he says, they are given in order that the church may become perfect, that is, that its members may grow up into perfect men, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Without these gifts the church never can grow up. It has nothing to edify or perfect it, nothing to do the saints any good, but with these gifts they may be perfected, and grow to the stature of the fullness of Christ. Journal of Discourses Elder Pratt elaborated on the reasons and blessings that result from the gifts of the Spirit. Now then, if I receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, or if my brethren receive it, I should expect that we would receive the manifestations of these gifts, one receiving one gift and another another, according to the Bible pattern. If we did not receive these gifts, then we might doubt that we had received the Holy Spirit. If we have them, we may be assured that the Holy Ghost has been given to us. For instance, if a person receives the baptism of fire and the Holy Ghost, and the heavens are open to him, he is not mistaken. If the Lord inspires him to lay hands upon a sick child or a sick person, and he commands the disease to be removed, he knows that God is with him, and that he hearkens to the supplications and prayers which he offers in the name of Jesus in behalf of the sick. In behalf of the sick. If a person has the vision of his mind open to behold the future and to know that which will shortly come to pass, and he sees things fulfilled, from time to time, he has every reason to believe that he has really received the Holy Ghost. So in regard to speaking in tongues, if an illiterate, uneducated man, who never understood any language but his mother tongue, is inspired at the very moment to rise and testify in an unknown tongue and to proclaim the wonderful works of God, he knows whether his tongue has been used by a supernatural power, or whether it is merely gibberish out of his own heart. He knows it very well for himself, and so we might continue throughout all the gifts mentioned in the Bible. Journal of Discourses There are many blessings to be enjoyed by the Lord's people through these gifts of God. They should be expected and then magnified when received, without doubt or rejection. With them the church can be edified and strengthened, but without them it will wander in darkness. Chapter 5 Speaking to Foreigners 
So the guest call-in number is 917-889-8827. There's also a chat room at blogtalkradio.com forward slash fundamentally mormon for people who have questions but do not want to come on the air. Remember, Fundamentally Mormon goes live Monday through Friday from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. And we will uh, start with the reading and commentary portion at this time. Here we go. Many Gifts of the Spirit, Chapter 4 of Gift of Tongues, pages 24 through 30. The gift of tongues is only one of many gifts that God has given to his people. Paul the Apostle listed it along with eight other spiritual gifts or powers. See 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 8 through 10. The ancient prophet Moroni mentioned ten in his list of spiritual gifts. See Moroni chapter 10 verses 9 through 16. Through a revelation to Joseph Smith, the Lord listed 14 different gifts that could be enjoyed by his people. Number one, to some it is given by the Holy Ghost to know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he was crucified for the sins of the world. Number two, to others it is given to believe on their word that they may also that they also might have eternal life if they continue faithful. Number three, and again, to some it is given by the Holy Ghost to know the differences of administration, as it will be pleasing unto the same Lord, according as the Lord will, suiting his mercies according to the conditions of the children of men. Number four, and again it is given by the Holy Ghost to uh, to some, to know the diversities of operations, whether they be of God, that the manifestations of the Spirit may be given to every man to profit withal. Number five, and again verily I say unto you, to some is given by the Spirit of God the word of wisdom. Number six, to another is given the word of knowledge that all may be taught to be wise and to have knowledge. Number seven, and again, to some it is given to have faith to be healed. Number eight, and to others it is given to have faith, to have faith to heal. Number nine, and again, to some is given the working of miracles. Number 10, and to others it is given to prophesy. Number 11, and to other, others is given, and to others the discerning of spirits. Number twelve, and again, it is given to some to speak with tongues. Number thirteen, and to another is given the interpretation of tongues. Number fourteen, and all of these gifts come from God for the benefit of the children of God. Let's see here. 15. And unto the bishop of the church, and unto such as God shall appoint and ordain to watch over the church and to be elders unto the church, 
are to have it given unto them to discern all those gifts, lest there shall be any among you professing, and yet be not of God. Doctrine and Covenants, section 46, verses 13 through 27. The Lord gives the reasons and purposes for these gifts. Number one, wherefore be faithful, I'm sorry, wherefore beware lest ye are deceived, and that ye may not be deceived, seek ye earnestly the best gifts, always remembering for what they are given. For verily I say unto you, they are given for the benefit of those who love me and keep all my commandments. And him that seeketh so to do, that all may be benefited, benefited that seek or that ask of me, that ask and not for a sign that they may consume it upon their lusts. And again, verily I say unto you, I would that ye should always remember and retain in your minds what those gifts are that are given unto the church. For all have not every gift given unto them, for there are many gifts, and to every man is given a gift by the Spirit of God. To some is given one, and to some is given another, that all may be profited thereby. Doctrine and Covenants, section 46, verses 8 through 12, page 26. These spiritual gifts are bestowed by the Lord where they will serve his purposes and strength, strengthen his cause in the gospel. It is essentially one of the means of edifying, instructing, comforting, and building faith. But the primary purpose of tongues is to convey intelligence, the words, and the will of God. It is a gift which accompanies the true gospel. It is therefore an evidence or a sign which follows the true believers of Christ. The sect of Christendom claim to believe in the word of wisdom and of knowledge by that spirit, but farther they will not go. No healing, no tongues, no prophecy for them. This is one of the things in which the Mormons believe too much in the Bible for the majority for the majority of professed Christians. The, later, the latter tells us that the Holy Ghost does not do things with things, these things now, but that it comes to us powerless, dead, and as far as its action on the human family is concerned. Suppose you were to go to a hotel for dinner and you were to be presented with a bill of fare on which you could read of the delicious vineyards, and after you had read it and were told what told that was all you could have to satisfy your hunger, would you think such a proceeding con- consistent? I'm not exactly sure if I'm reading this right, but it doesn't sound like. It doesn't sound right as far as, like, how he's wording it, but I'll continue on. And yet today the Christian world is just as unreasonable in their demands upon the Latter-day Saints. They ask that we be satisfied with the spiritual bill of fare, but this is not in accordance with God's law. 
His gospel always has the same power and efficacy. And quote, Life and Ministry of John Morgan, page 461, which was written in 1888. I'm not exactly what Ogden is trying to say here, or what this uh, John Morgan is trying to say. Um, I just find it interesting that most of the world, they do not operate in the gifts of the Spirit. And that includes the Latter-day Saints. I mean, we're going to get into this quote and other quotes, but, you know, Paul said that this is one of the least gifts, and yet it doesn't manifest itself in our church. Um, If you broaden the definition the way I do, then maybe it does. Uh, Because I consider when God speaks through my mouth, while I'm giving a talk or sermon or whatnot, um, and he basically takes over. I've had that happen many, many times, and I believe that that is the gift of tongues. That's one of the manifestations of the gift of tongues. There's different manifestations. Anyway, but continuing on. The gifts of God are blessings bestowed upon the people who honor God's laws and commandments. They seem to be they seem to be an evidence of his approval upon those who accept the words and ordinances of his true servants. So we're on page 27 now, and we're at 43%. And when Paul laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came upon them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied. Acts chapter 19, verse 6. However, it should be remembered that all gifts are not visible demonstrations of the power of God. Many gifts are not noticeable except to those who receive them. The prophet Joseph Smith explained, The church is a compact body comprised of different members and is strictly analogous to the human system. And Paul, after speaking of the different gifts, says, Now we are the body of Christ and members in particular. And God has set some in the church, first apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, governments, diversities of tongues, are all teachers, are all workers of miracles, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret. It is evident that they do not. Yet are they all members of one body? All members of the natural body are not the eye, the ear, the head, or the hand. Yet the eye cannot say to the ear, I have no need of thee, nor the head to the foot, I have no need of thee. They are also, they are all so many component parts in the perfect machine. The one body, and if one member suffer, the whole of the members suffer with it. And if one member rejoice, the whole of the rest are honored with it. These are they, these then are all gifts. They come from God. They are of God. They are all of the gifts of the Holy Ghost. 
They are what Christ descended into heaven to impart, and yet how few of them could be known by the generalities of men. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given unto every man to profit withal. For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another the gifts of the healing by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, and to another to prophesy, to another the discerning of spirits, and to another diverse kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But all these worketh that one and the selfsame Spirit, dividing to each man severely as he will, severally as he will. There are several gifts mentioned here, yet which one of them could be known by an observer at the imposition of hands? The word of wisdom and the word of knowledge are as much gifts as any other, yet if a person possesses both of these gifts, or receives them by the imposition of hands, who would know it? Another might receive the gift of faith, and they would be as ignorant of it. Or suppose a man had the gift of healing or power to work miracles that would not then be known, it would require time and circumstances to call these gifts into operation. Suppose a man had the discerning of spirits, who would be the wiser for it? Or if he had the interpretation of tongues, unless someone spoke in an unknown tongue. Actually, um, my wife has the gift of discerning, and people don't know it. So when people are lying to her, she might have a smile on her face, and she might be listening to every word that you're saying, but she knows exactly where you're coming from in your deceit. So, uh, they, you know, he's just saying basically, you know, you, these gifts might not be outward, but the people who have them, uh, well, my wife knows that she has that gift, but um, others might not know what gifts they have. Um, because they've never had the faith to operate in them. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, continuing on the, word, uh, the reading. Or if he had the interpretation of tongues, unless someone spoke in an unknown, language, uh, unknown tongue, he, of course, would have to be silent. There are only two gifts that could be made visible, the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy. These are things that are the most talked about, and yet if a person spoke in the unknown tongue according to Paul's testimony, he would be a barbarian to those present. They would say that it was all gibberish, and that he prophes- and if he prophesied, they would call it nonsense. The gift of tongues is the smallest gift, perhaps, of the whole, and yet it is one that is the most sought after. Doctrinal History of the Church, Volume 5, page 28-30. There are many reasons for these gifts, one of which, according to Orson Pratt, is that they are essential to the Church. Quote, 
And they now say, give us all these gifts. If we have a church, let us have inspired apostles and prophets in that church. For without them, the saints cannot be made perfect. They are given also, says Paul, not only for the perfecting of the saints, but for the work of the ministry. How can the work of the ministry proceed without apostles and prophets? It cannot proceed. They are given for the edifying of the body of Christ, says the Apostle. And we're on page 29 at 77% of the reading. Let me just remind you again, the guest call-in number is 917-889-8827. That's 917-889-8827. Zion's Redemption Radio Network goes live Monday through Friday from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. And there is a chat room at blogtalkradio.com forward slash fundamentally Mormon. Continuing on, how can the body of Christ be edified without apostles and prophets and the gifts mentioned? And again, he says, they are given in order that the church may become perfect. That is, that it is its members may grow up into perfect men unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Without these gifts, the church never can grow up. It has nothing to edify or perfect it, nothing to do, nothing to do the saints any good. But with these gifts, they may be perfected and grow to the stature of the fullness of Christ. I was in Journal of Discourses, Volume 16, page 296. And that was Orson Pratt. That was a quote by Orson Pratt. Elder Pratt elaborated on the reasons and blessings that result from the gifts of the Spirit. Quote, And now then, if I receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, or if my brethren receive it, I should expect that we would receive the manifestations of these gifts, one receiving one gift and another another, according to the Bible pattern. If we did not receive these gifts, then we might doubt that we had had received the Holy Spirit. And if we have them, we may be assured to the Holy Ghost And if we have them, we may be assured that the Holy Ghost has been given to us. For instance, if a person receives the baptism of fire and the Holy Ghost and the heavens are open to him, he is not not mistaken. If the Lord inspires him to lay hands upon the sick or or a sick child or a sick person, and it commands the disease to be removed, he knows that God is with him, and that he hearkens to the supplications and the prayers which he offers in the name of Jesus in behalf of the sick. If a person has the vision of his mind open to behold the future and to know that which will shortly come to pass, and he sees things fulfilled from time to time, he has every reason to believe that he has really received the Holy Ghost. So in regards to speaking in tongues, 
it's an illus, Ill, illiterate, uneducated man who never understood any language but his mother tongue is inspired at the very moment to rise and to testify in an unknown tongue and to proclaim the wonderful works of God. He knows whether his tongue has been used by the supernatural power or whether it is merely gibberish out of his own heart. We're on page 30, at 96% of the reading. He knows it very well for himself, and so we might continue throughout all of the gifts mentioned in the Bible. Journal of Discourses, Volume 16, page 216. There are many blessings to be enjoyed by the Lord's people through these gifts of God. They should be expected and then magnified when received without doubt or rejection. With them, the church can be edified and strengthened, but without them, it will wander in darkness. So that's the end of that chapter. When we come back on reading this book, we'll be starting on page 31, which will be chapter 5, and it will be speaking to foreigners. So uh, the studios are open at this time. The guest call-in number for live call-ins is 917-889-8827. That's 917-889-8827. Thank you for listening. All right, so uh, Emmett and my wife Kim are in a meeting uh, on Monday nights, so they're not going to be on right now. Um, but I did prepare something. So we usually, we've been reading uh, How to Qualify for the Celestial Kingdom today, but I don't want to read it. Five, six, one, thank you. I'm at the mine, by the way. <laughs> and uh, anyway, that's one of my favorite coworkers talking to me on the radio. Anyway, but uh, I don't want to read this book without them. Because uh, I love this book, but I want them to get what they can get out of it. So uh, what we what I did was uh, we're going to listen to a recording that I prepared from a YouTube video that is not mine, but uh, I'm relying on fair use, uh, the laws of fair uh, fair use, uh, so I don't uh, infringe on somebody's copyright, you know. Uh, anyway, uh, Kim, are you there? Something in the background that was weird. Anyway, but uh, I give some commentary in the uh, in the the recording. I linked the video. If you want to go take a look at the video, this is part six of a whole bunch of a big old series. This guy is done. I really enjoy his work, uh, but he kind of tramples on some things that I know are sacred principles. And uh, he doesn't believe them, so whatever. Anyway, this is the end of Nauvoo, and uh, we'll mute. Uh, the guest call-in number, by the way, is 917-889-8827. All right, let's see here. Let me just mute myself. So since my wife is not able to read tonight, I thought I would uh, 
just record this. Uh, this comes from a YouTube video. Uh, the channel name is called Profit Central. And I really enjoy listening to this guy. Uh, he's so close to so much truth. But I think it's because he has the idea that the Melchizedek priesthood was taken off the earth, that he can't see what's right in front of him, but he still gives a lot of really good information. So I decided to include it in this podcast. Um, so here we go. I'm just going to let it play, and then I will pause it when I have a comment. Uh, this is called End of Nauvoo, Part 6, The Temple and Your Spiritual Foundation. So the priesthood was restored in the Nauvoo Temple. Now I'm going to ask here, is there any testimony of this restoration happening, of the fullness of the priesthood being restored in the Nauvoo Temple? We're going to analyze this and look at the fruits of this claim and this event if it did indeed happen. And look at the surrounding environment of the religion of the church and of the spirituality, the records and whatnot. So the footnote in the talk on the website references Doctrine and Covenants section 110, verses 13 through 16. This is talking about Elijah returning and restoring the keys of his priesthood, of, of turning the hearts of the children to the fathers and the heart of the fathers to the children. But that was in Kirkland. That wasn't in Nauvoo. Let's look further, though, at section 117. Verse 16 says, And again, verily I say unto you, Let all my servants in the land of Kirtland remember the Lord their God, and mine house also, to keep and preserve it holy, and to overthrow the money changers in mine own due time, saith the Lord. Even so, amen. Did you catch that? That in the Kirtland era, in the Kirtland house, that it was to be kept and preserved as holy, and in the Lord's own due time, there would be money changers overthrown. So this reveals that there were money changers, parabolically, in the Kirtland temple. The house of Kirtland was polluted, and there were money changers. So in Doctrine and Covenants, section 124, verses 24 through 28, this is now talking about the temple in Nauvoo, not in Kirtland. So it says, This house shall be a healthful habitation, if it be built unto my name. There's that qualifier, right? And if the governor which shall be appointed unto it shall not suffer any pollution to come upon it, it shall be holy, or the Lord your God will not dwell therein. The Kirtland temple was no longer holy. It was polluted with money changers. And again, verily I say unto you, let all my saints come from afar, and send ye swift messengers, yea, chosen messengers, and say unto them, Come ye with all your gold and your silver, and your precious stones, and with all your antiquities, and with all who have knowledge of antiquities, that will come may come, and bring the box tree, the fir tree, the pine tree, together with all the precious trees of the earth, and with iron, with copper, with brass, with zinc, with all your precious things of the earth, and build a house to my name, for that most high to dwell therein. This here is saying, bring all your treasures of the world, everyone who believes from afar, from near, sacrifice your worldly possessions to build a house of God. We're going to read about that later, the worldly possessions. 
lastly in 28 for there is not a place found on earth not a place that he may come to and restore again so Kirtland Temple is disqualified there's not a place where God can come to restore again that which was lost unto you lost unto the church unto the saints or which he hath, which God hath taken away even the fullness of the priesthood so we see here in this revelation that the fullness of the priesthood was lost it was taken away from the saints meaning it was given at one time but it was taken away it was given in Kirtland but it had been lost since and I would also mention that God says he will not dwell in a polluted house he could not dwell in Kirtland and he will not dwell in Nauvoo if it is polluted he cannot make his abode among any impurity or any people who are impure there must be a people prepared a people purified and sanctified in order for him to make his abode that is necessary for the second coming in section 88 let's read verses 18 and 19 it says therefore it must needs be sanctified it meaning the body of christ the temple is symbolic of that sanctified from all unrighteousness that it may be prepared for the celestial glory now this is talking about the measure of the creation of the temple of the body of christ for after it hath filled the measure of its creation it shall be crowned with glory the crown of eternal life even with the presence of god the father we read about the degrees of glory the presence or the fullness of the father is celestial order the church of the firstborn the highest so let's ask, did the Kirtland Temple fill the measure of its creation? Well, we just learned that it was polluted. There were money changers there and that need to be overthrown. Did the Nabu Temple fill the measure of its creation? Did the presence of God the Father ever abide in the temple? Did the temple ever receive its crown of glory? Has any temple since filled the measure of its creation? Has there ever been a testimony of the Father being present? Was there the Father present in the Kirtland Temple? I would say there was the presence of the Son. Was there ever the presence of the Father? Something to think about in section 127, verse 8. I am about to restore many things to the earth. Many things is peculiar because it's not all things, but many things pertaining to the priesthood, saith the Lord of hosts. So they're still holding back, right? not all things but many things now with president nelson claiming that the fullness of the priesthood being restored in the nabu temple can be traced back to an event in september 1843 this was an event where a few people who later became known as the quorum of the anointed were receiving anointings and they were receiving endowments <laughs> but the funny thing is this wasn't in the temple this was in the red brick store this was in personal residences this was in other locations not in the temple because the temple was not built they barely even could get the basement sufficiently finished to perform baptisms let alone any other part of the temple it wasn't ready until after joseph's death saying that it was restored in the temple seems a little odd to me but we're going to dig into it and give president nelson the benefit of the doubt for now in Genesis chapter 14, I want to talk about here what it reveals about the priesthood. This is Joseph Smith's translation, verses 27 through 31. And thus, having been approved of God, 
he was ordained and high priest. We've talked about this sacrifice that needs to be approved, a, an offering in righteousness that is acceptable unto God. So having been approved of God, he was ordained and high priest after the order of the covenant which God made with Enoch. It being after the order of the Son of God, which order came not by man, nor the will of man, neither by father nor mother, neither by beginning of days nor end of years, but of God. Okay, this is talking about Melchizedek. And it was delivered unto men by the calling of his own voice. This is how men receive the highest priesthood. The calling of his own voice, according to his own will, unto as many as believed on his name. For God, having sworn unto Enoch and unto his seed, with an oath by himself, no other man swore it unto him, but God himself, that everyone being ordained after this order and calling should have power by faith to break mountains, to divide the seas, to dry up waters, to turn them out of their course, to put at defiance the armies of nations, to divide the earth, to break every band, loosing, right? Breaking every band, to stand in the presence of God, to do all things according to his will, according to his command, subdue principalities and powers, and this by the will of the Son of God, which was from before the foundation of the world. This is talking about the fullness of the priesthood, the highest order. It does not come through family. It does not come through father nor mother, but it comes by God's own voice. And it is true power that is from a covenant, from an oath, as was made with Enoch and with others, with Elijah. This is his whole mission, to turn our hearts to this promise made to these great fathers who truly had power and had association who stood in the presence of God who knew him who heard his own voice and received his own priesthood unto them by him and none other man in Hebrews 7 verse 3 again Joseph Smith's translation it reinforces this Melchizedek was ordained a priest after the order of the son of God which order was without father without mother without descent not like the Aaronic priesthood not like the priesthood that we know now that comes from father to son having neither beginning of days nor end of life and all those who are ordained unto this priesthood are made like unto the son of god and when you are like the son of god you shall see him this is abiding a priest continually this is the greater priesthood not the lesser priesthood it was not family oriented it is family oriented in greater ways in the family of god but let's look at the article of faith number five says we believe that a man must be called of God by prophecy because this thinking of the Melchizedek priesthood having to come by a man having to be called by a man it seems to contradict this article of faith it says we must be called of God by prophecy and by the laying on of hands what is the laying on of hands well that's the ordinance of the gift of the Holy Ghost and also in similitude for healing the sick we are healed spiritually when we receive the ordinance of the gift of the Holy Ghost so this is in similitude, right? Being called of God by this ordinance, by those who are in authority, one who is sealed, right? One who is called and sealed, as section 76 says. So this is interesting here. There's a comma. Those in authority to preach the gospel and administer in the ordinance thereof. This seems to apply more to one who is called by the laying on of hands rather than one with authority. So in order to preach the gospel and minister in the ordinances, you need to be called by another man. But in Times and Seasons, March 1st, 1842, it clarifies the original version of the article of faith. The punctuation is different. We believe that a man must be called of God 
by quotations prophecy and by the laying on of hands and quotations by those who are in authority to preach the gospel and administer in the ordinances thereof so it is those who are in authority one who is sealed and anointed by the Holy Ghost one who is sealed to that power who preaches the gospel and administers the ordinances thereof the preaching the gospel and administering the ordinances refers to one who has authority not to the one who must be called by prophecy and by receiving the gifts of the Holy Ghost that punctuation removed gives us clarity on who that preaching and administering falls upon those who are in authority I would also say that receiving that gift of the Holy Ghost is receiving your calling and election we've talked about that sealing power being making that calling and election sure so this is the first step first full ordinance of the gospel it's all leading to receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost in the words of Joseph Smith on the 27th of August 1843 it says salvation could not come to the world without the mediation of Jesus Christ how shall God come to the rescue of this generation he shall send Elijah law revealed to Moses in Horam never was revealed to the church of Israel so there was a law given to Moses that was never fully revealed is what's being said here and he shall reveal the covenants to seal the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers anointing and sealing called elected and made sure there's the clarification on what the sealing is without father a priesthood which holds the priesthood by right from the eternal gods and not by descent from father and mother this is again reinforcing that higher priesthood not coming from a man of this world maybe conferred yes but it's not truly received save it be only from God from his own voice and his own hand let me clarify here this is talking about three orders of priesthood there's the highest which is referring to Elijah there's this second now referring to Abraham it says here the second priesthood patriarchal authority now I would clarify this is apostolic authority not heavenly patriarch but earthly patriarch which is the greatest yet experienced in this church he says the greatest priesthood which is still considered the fullness of the priesthood was the greatest yet experienced the priesthood of Elijah had not been experienced in the church the priesthood of Abraham had and in Kirtland the keys to the gospel of Abraham which included the priesthood authority which was restored was the greatest yet experienced in the church and here it's recorded that Joseph said finish the temple and God will fill it with power or will bring back this same priesthood the greatest priesthood that had been experienced that was taken away that was lost and then the third order third priesthood is Levitical or Aaronic priesthood priest made without an oath but the priesthood of Melchizedek the highest is by oath and covenant you cannot have the Melchizedek priesthood truly without the covenant without having made your oath and received the covenant and that is the Holy Ghost the gift of the Holy Ghost God's messenger to administer in all those priesthoods you cannot have the priesthood after the order of the Son of God without the gift of the Holy Ghost and that is why it says a man must be called of God by the laying on of hands you must receive the gift of the Holy Ghost and one who has authority has to be ordained and sealed not just any man in the church that can confer and lay his hands upon you that's in similitude of the actual ordinance and blessing so in section 110 
It says, After this, Elias appeared and committed the dispensation of the gospel of Abraham, saying that in us and our seed, all generations after us should be blessed. Elias and Elijah are the same name. One's Greek, one's Hebrew. I know there's a distinguishing mission between Elias and Elijah, even though it's the same name. One is quarrying stone. One is mortaring the stone. So they work in tandem, basically doing the same work, but different aspects of the labor. But they are all necessary. In order to have fathers and children to turn their hearts toward each other, they must be prepared. They must receive their calling and election, and then the calling and election can be made sure. You cannot make something sure that has not been quarried, has not come into existence. If you don't have a calling and election, it can't be made sure. Simple as that. So again, Abraham's authority was the greatest yet experienced in the church. It was taken away, as said in 124, and needed to be restored. And that's why it said many things were about to be restored concerning the priesthood. Not all things yet because Elijah truly had not fully come into effect. In the words of Joseph Smith, again on the same day, 27th of August, 1843, we're going to look at two of the notes, notes 22 and 30. There's some interesting things here. It says, As high and important to the church as the offices of prophet, apostle, and patriarch are, nevertheless, these highest ecclesiastical ordinances do not confer the authority of Elijah. I believe this is Joseph Fielding Smith stating this. They do not confer the highest authority. None of these callings, prophet, apostle, patriarch, highest ecclesiastical ordinations, don't include the authority of Elijah, which is the sealing power of the priesthood, or the power of a king and priest, as President Joseph Fielding Smith expressed it, best in our own century. Okay, I do not care what office you hold in the church. You may be an apostle, which is what Brigham Young claimed was the highest, you may be a patriarch, which is what uh, Joseph and Hiram claim to be the highest office, a high priest, which is the highest general office, or anything else. But you cannot receive the fullness of the priesthood and the fullness of eternal reward unless you receive the <coughs> of the house of the Lord, unless you have your calling and election made sure. The temple is a parable. Joseph Fielding Smith is saying you have to go through the house of the Lord. I think he's referring to the actual temple. But what apostle, patriarch, high priest wouldn't go through the temple? I'd be interested to know the environment surrounding this statement. But in our day, it's like, well, of course, every apostle and patriarch and high priest has gone through the temple. But maybe he's referring to the second anointing, right? That's an anointing to be a king and a priest. Continuing, then the door is open. So you can obtain all the blessings which may which any man can gain which is what brigham was saying we have received all that we can receive in this life continuing you can have the fullness of the lord's blessings sealed upon you as an elder if you are faithful and when you receive them and live faithfully and keep these covenants you then have all that any man can get exactly as brigham young said you basically have to go through to get the second anointing there's no exaltation in the kingdom of God without the fullness of the priesthood. Again, the fullness of the priesthood, we read, comes from God himself, not by man, not by the will of man, not by family, father, or mother, or anything, right? It comes directly from God. It doesn't happen in the temple, necessarily. It is only symbolic of that. Now, in note 30, what was this fullness of the priesthood? The most concise but inclusive definition of the authority of the fullness of the priesthood was given by Joseph Smith in his 
10th of March, 1844 discourse, when he said, Now for Elijah, the spirit, power, and calling of Elijah is that ye have power to hold the keys of the revelations, ordinances, oracles, powers, and endowments of the fullness of the Melchizedek priesthood and of the kingdom of God on the earth and to receive, obtain, and perform all the ordinances belonging to the kingdom of God. This comes from God himself, the presence of Jesus Christ. That is, having your calling and election made sure to have the Holy Spirit of promise and truth seal upon you the crown of eternal life. And continuing to have power to seal on earth and in heaven, you receive the authority of Elijah, the power of that mission for yourself. It's not just sealed upon you and you rely on another man who claims to have sealing power. But you have to get the sealing power yourself. Because even these highest offices don't confer that authority. It cannot be accessed simply by a man laying his hands upon you. However... Okay, I do not agree with his conclusion here. Um, in the days of Joseph Smith, when he had his calling and election made sure he was sealed up unto God and was given the sealing power that he held exclusively. You don't get sealing power by having the baptism of fire. You don't get it by having anything other than being called up as the Lord's anointed to do the work of the ministry. So when it talks about that it is never on the earth but one man who holds these keys and the sealing power. That's what it's talking about. Um, there is a file leader. Joseph Smith in his day was the file leader. Um, and also the fullness of the priesthood, he, he like gets it so right because he keeps reading these quotes, but he just he believes a certain way and it's like clouding his judgment. The only way you receive the fullness of the priesthood is by the laying on of hands of God. Joseph Smith had it when he had his calling and election made sure. Now, God wanted to give the fullness of the priesthood to all of the saints in Nauvoo and he told him in January January 18th 1841 that they needed to build a temple whereby the Most High could come dwell therein and they needed to build it in, in Jesus name where he talking about the Most High or the Father could come to and restore that which was lost or that which was taken from you, even the fullness of the priesthood. Now, I don't believe Joseph ever lost it. But Joseph didn't have the authority to give it either. Because the only way you can receive the fullness of the priesthood is, first, you have to have a man who has priesthood authority lay his hands upon your head and you receive the first portion of the higher priesthood, which is the Melchizedek priesthood. And that as you are true and faithful, the time will come when you will go into the presence of the, the Son and he will introduce you to the Father 
and then you will have your calling and election made sure, which when I had my calling and election made sure, I asked Heavenly Father what he was doing, and he told me he was filling me up into himself, that I may be sealed up unto eternal life. And then he gave me, or well, he sealed me to himself, and he gave me the keys of the kingdom and the priesthood. And I received the fullness of the priesthood. But I only received it because he gave it to me, which is the only way you can receive it. Now, his clouded judgment here, he believes that the Melchizedek priesthood was fully taken away from, from the church. No, it was not. That the fullness of the priesthood had not yet been restored to the earth uh, to the saints of Zion. But I, I believe Joseph did have the fullness or he was working up to that point. I'm not exactly sure. I haven't gotten personal revelation on that. But in order to come into the presence of the Father, the Most High, for him to restore the fullness of the priesthood, you have to have Melchizedek priesthood to even be in his presence. You know, you can be in his, uh, you can have a vision of him, but to be in his physical presence so he can lay his hands upon you and restore the fullness of the priesthood, in anywhere, but especially in the Nauvoo Temple, you had to have the Melchizedek priesthood to even go into his presence. So these individuals who believe, and they're just running amok, they're sharing something that a great massive uh, judoscope by the name of Denver Snuffer uh, began to teach, and it's just a lie. Denver Snuffer teaches that, that the Melchizedek priesthood was taken from the earth and that Jesus Christ needed them to build that temple where he, Jesus, could come restore the fullness of the priesthood. But if you look carefully at the wording of, of Doctrine and Covenants section 124 verses 27 and 28, we can see that Jesus is telling Joseph Smith to build a temple whereby he, Joseph Smith, or whereby he, well, okay, let me think, build a temple unto the Most High where he can come to restore that which was lost or that which was taken away, even the fullness of the priesthood. Well, Jesus is talking about somebody else, not himself. He doesn't say where I can come restore the fullness of the priesthood. He says where the Most High can come where he can restore. He, he, he says it a couple of times in this revelation in verses 27 and 28. Because it is the work of the Father, which is mentioned in Third Nephi, that Jesus desired to begin, to begin in Nauvoo if they were obedient to the revelation given January of 1841, which they weren't. In January of 1841, they still had the Melchizedek priesthood. Or the Father could not come dwell in a temple and allow anyone to come in to restore the fullness of the priesthood. Now, some people make up, they, they make up stuff to like try to defend their narrative. So, I had an individual, when I questioned him about it, he said, um, well... Joseph didn't have the Melchizedek priesthood taken away. And I said, well, well, then why couldn't Joseph just restore the 
the priest, the Melchizedek priesthood. He, he said, well, the keys for passing it along was taken away from him, and he would have to go into the presence of the Father in the Nauvoo Temple to receive the keys so that he could again restore the Melchizedek priesthood to the church. Um, the only problem with that is it's the Father that has to restore the fullness of the priesthood to all of the saints. And you cannot come into the presence of the Father without having the Melchizedek priesthood. Which, by the way, that brings me to another point real quick. A number of years ago, in 2015, I believe it was, um, God gave me a revelation, and my wife wrote it down, where I was commanded to give her the matriarchal priesthood. And I was like, oh, well, that's really interesting. And I gave it to her, and she's used it, and she has it. But in order to come into the presence of the Father, if you're a man or a woman, you have to have Melchizedek priesthood. Now, all priesthood is Melchizedek, according to Joseph Smith, but there's different levels in portions of the priesthood. Well, women have the Melchizedek priesthood independent of their husbands, and that's called the matriarchal priesthood. Joseph Smith gave it to the saints in Nauvoo, and Brigham Young did away with it. He disbanded the Relief Society, and he didn't reorganize it until, like, in the 1860s or the 1870s. And then it was something completely different than what Joseph Smith intended it for, to be. And Jesus Christ, you know, he... that Well, it doesn't matter what Joseph thought. What matters is what God thinks. And God intends women to have matriarchal priesthood. And they can do a lot of things with that priesthood. But one of the most important things they can do with that priesthood is come into the presence of the Father. Which at some point we're all going to do. And if you don't have priesthood, if you do not have Melchizedek priesthood, as you're standing there, you won't be able to stand there. Anyway, continuing on with this recording... I'm going to probably have to cut this short just because I have to get this uploaded and I have to get to, uh, I actually have to get to work because uh, I have to be there early because my wife, well, actually, she can just come straight home. Well, they have a meeting tonight. That's why I'm doing this. So um, usually uh, my wife and my son will read uh, the book that we're going through. Uh, called How to Qualify for the Celestial Kingdom Today, but they're not able to do that today, so I'm just doing this, because I want them to read that book, and I don't want to read it, because I've already read it a ton of times, but I want them to learn from that book. Uh, and I want to I share it with you, you know, the listening audience. So I'm using this time to, uh, to create this other recording. Now, if you want to listen to this uh, YouTube recording, uh, the channel name is Prophet Central. He only has 136 subscribers, but uh, I think that he brings up a lot of good stuff. But the problem is this individual, and I think I know who it is because I think I baptized him and he lives up in Idaho, um, him and his wife, Carissa, 
uh, and his name's Jordan. Now, if it's not, it sounds a lot like Jordan. And I'm actually the one that, that got him to start doing YouTube videos, uh, reading Rob K's Mormon Yeshiva stuff for me, because I was doing it and I just didn't have time, so he took on that responsibility. And then he started, uh, he went off in the, in the, the weeds because he learned something about the Indian prophet and, you know, he never really said anything to me, but I think he was thinking, like, you can't be the prophet because you're not an Indian. What's interesting about that is, I don't know the Indian prophet. I can see, like, where you can debunk it and I can see where you can say, oh yeah, that's a thing. But it doesn't matter because, I don't look like I'm, you know, a Native American, but my great-grandmother was. She was an Iroquois Indian from the Seneca Nation. So, hmm, that's interesting. Anyway, but, um, so I'm really glad. If this is Jordan, it sounds a lot like Jordan, a lot. But, he doesn't say who his name is, but if it's not, then whatever. He still has these ideas, and they are the precepts of men mingled with Scripture. And he, the, these people who believe the fullness of the priesthood is just the Melchizedek priesthood, they can read, read the comments. They can read all this stuff, and they can't see what they're reading because they have this clouded, this clouded vision because they they want the fullness of the priesthood to be Melchizedek because that's what they've come up with. Because somebody taught that to them. And they just can't see it. And like, I, I pray that his eyes will be opened and I pray that your eyes will be opened at some point so that you can understand that the Melchizedek priesthood was on the earth even after Joseph died. But the fullness of the priesthood you have to get from the Father. And you cannot come into his presence for him to lay his hands upon your head unless you have the first order of the Melchizedek priesthood, which is something that you get from somebody who has authority to give it. So Peter, James, and John gave it to Joseph Smith and Oliver. And Joseph Smith and Oliver gave it to other individuals. They didn't just get it because they thought they needed it. And voila, priesthood of all believers, kind of like Martin Luther back in the 1500s did. No, you actually have to have somebody with authority lay his hands on your head for you to receive it. So, anyway, uh, let's continue with this recording and we'll see how far we can get before I have to, uh, have to call it quits for the recording. Um, but anyway, the, the video is called End of Nauvoo, Part 6, The Temple and Your Spiritual Foundation. And he's got a lot of other really good videos. He, he hits it hard. I mean, I really enjoy this guy's commentary and what he's been able to dig up. And I kind of envy him because I don't have the time to do these kind of things. I don't know how anybody has the time to do these things. You know, just doing the radio show and taking the time to do that. And everything else that I have to do is, it's very time consuming. But this guy, he's able to put these videos out and I really appreciate it. So anyway, I suggest you go to Prophet Central on YouTube and check him out. And uh, we'll continue with the recording here.
the prophet had not yet administered the ordinances that made men kings and priests. That was claimed to have come in September of 1843, though. So Brigham Young said three weeks before this discourse that no one yet in the church had the fullness of the Melchizedek priesthood. For any person to have the fullness of that priesthood, he must be a king and a priest. Brigham Young admits it. So how do you become a king and a priest? We've already talked about this. How to have your calling and election made sure. It's to stand in the presence of Christ and have his voice and his hand give you this promise. Until his martyrdom, Joseph Smith continued to receive revelations that furthered the restoration of the endowment and sealing ordinances. So check out this graph here. This is showing the number of revelations or number of sections in the Doctrine and Covenants per year. Notice how it ends at 1843, begins in 1823. In 1823 is when he had Moroni ministering to him. In 1843 is when the fullness of the priesthood was supposedly restored, but we just saw that even in 1843, the fullness was not apparent, even to Brigham Young. The last revelation in the Doctrine and Covenants was section 132 from 1843, July. This was before the alleged restoration, which was in September, when uh, people were anointed as kings and priests and sealed to their spouses. This anointed quorum that came about claims to have received all of these. Sections 129 through section 134, those are all from the last year, 1843. Uh, but there are some issues with section 131 and 132 as well. These having originated from the hand of William Clayton, who claimed to have been the scribe of these revelations. But they were received in private. These weren't received in public. And Joseph made clear, he made a bold statement that the strongest doctrines were known publicly, not just privately. And the, the compromised doctrine in 131 is the understanding of three degrees within the celestial glory and the, the highest priesthood of being in the covenant of marriage. Section 132 also focusing on the covenant of marriage, specifically plural marriage. These are compromised doctrines because William Clayton was not a trustworthy man. We've read interactions with him and Emma. We've talked about his interactions with Joseph and his fraud on the church, taking money and claiming Joseph gave him authority to bring a woman from England, all kinds of stuff. William was compromised. He was not a trustworthy man of God. And convenient that the very last revelation that we have published from Joseph Smith in the Doctrine and Covenants, canonized revelation, regarded polygamy, which is supposedly the greatest connection to the mission of Elijah, that priesthood, that authority. So when the fullness of the priesthood is claimed to have been restored, when does this really happen? Where's the fruit? This graph shows us that in 1831, we had the greatest amount. What happened in 1831? Well, I, I submit to you that this was when the fullness of the priesthood was restored. Because in 1831, June, on the Isaac Morley farm is when high priests were ordained. And many testified that this is when the Melchizedek priesthood was first made manifest in the church. This is interesting. There's an abundance of revelation before and after. It kind of falls off in 1832, though, because that's when we see in section 84 that 
the church is placed under condemnation for rejecting the covenant. They are not pursuing and receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost. So it begins to dwindle. Revelation begins to reduce. And in 1834 is when we get the loss of priesthood. The name of the church has changed. The name of Christ is taken out. So there's some issues here. And then in 1836, when uh, the keys of Elijah were supposedly restored, we don't see an uptick in Revelation. There's a little bit in 1838, you can see. And that comes with the expulsion from Missouri and the transfer or the migration to Nauvoo. So there's a little bit there. But you think in 1843 and 1844, if the fullness of the priesthood was restored, wouldn't we see another spike in Revelation? Wouldn't it start to just expand immensely if that fullness was truly restored like it was in 1831 when that priesthood of abraham right not the keys of elijah but the gospel of abraham was restored that apostolic priesthood the high priest being called or ordained that is just the beginning they do not receive the actual priesthood save it be only from god right and there were some who testified of having entered into the presence of god and they quite possibly could have had that authority truly given to them and sealed upon them but where is the continuation i would expect that we would see that that we would have seen an abundance of revelation in 1843 and 1844 and continuing after if people if the men the leaders of the church truly had the fullness of the priesthood so warning sign the fullness of the priesthood brings an abundance of revelation and power we should expect this so where's the fruit where's the fullness of the priesthood are we seeing an abundance of revelation today? Well, what's the revelation we have now? The revelation seems to be simply procedural. It's not doctrinal. So is that true heavenly revelation? Is, is there power there in inconvenience, in methods of administering? Or is the power in the doctrine, in association with the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost? Let's read in section 84, verses 19 to 26, to confirm why I claim that the fullness of the priesthood should bring an abundance of revelation. In 19, in this greater priesthood, administereth the gospel and holdeth the key of the mysteries of the kingdom. This is the key of the greater priesthood, to open up these mysteries, even the key of the knowledge of God. We've talked about this knowledge, the knowledge of all things. If we are truly progressing and receiving the fullness, we get more and more and more knowledge until we know all things. Therefore, in the ordinances thereof, the power of godliness is manifest. And without the ordinances thereof, the authority of the priesthood, the power of godliness is not manifest unto men in the flesh. There is very little of this being testified of and being apparent in the church. Where is this authority? Where are these ordinances? Where is the power? Where are these manifestations? Where is this abundance? Is all well in Zion? In 22, for without this, no man can see the face of God even the Father, and live. This is the greatest ordinance, to be in the presence of the Son and the Father, to receive of the fullness of the Father. Continuing now, this Joseph, not Moses, I'm changing it here, Joseph plainly taught to the children of the Gentiles, the Latter-day Saints, in the wilderness, and sought diligently to sanctify his people that they might behold the face of God. I say in the wilderness because they were rejected from the promised land, the land of Missouri. They were in the wilderness. Moses taught plainly that they, we, we should seek diligently 
to become sanctified, to receive our calling and election, which is a gift of the Holy Ghost, that we may eventually behold the face of God. To have that calling and election made sure, that is the true sealing. But they hardened their hearts and could not endure his presence. Therefore the Lord in his wrath, for his anger was kindled against them, swore that they should not enter into his rest while in the wilderness. Which rest is the fullness of his glory, the fullness of the Father, right? Nothing less, not a portion. In order to be of celestial order, we must enter into the rest, which is the fullness of the glory of, of God, which is the fullness of the Father, not just the presence of the Son. Therefore, he took Joseph out of their midst, and the holy priesthood also. This is a parable between Moses and Joseph. Many claim that Brigham was the American Moses, but Joseph truly was. Brigham drove them into the wilderness even further, whereas Joseph tried to bring them back to the promised land. But he was taken out of their midst, and the holy priesthood also. And the lesser priesthood continued, which priesthood holdeth the key of the ministering of angels and the preparatory gospel, which gospel is the gospel of repentance and of baptism and the remission of sins and the law of carnal commandments. We saw that under Moses, the original Ten Commandments were done away with and replaced with a new set of Ten Commandments that were much more carnal, much more temple-focused, which the Lord in his wrath caused to continue with the house of the Latter-day Saints among the children of the Gentiles until that Elijah, whom God raised up or will raise up, being filled with the Holy Ghost from his mother's womb. He will be a special servant. He recognized, however, that further refinement was needed. After administering the endowment to Brigham Young in May 1842, Joseph told Brigham, this is not a ranged right, but we've done the best we could under the circumstances in which we were placed. And I wish you to take this matter in hand and organize and systematize all these ceremonies. So here, we're getting information from President Nelson that Brigham Young received an endowment in May 1842. So I went and looked at the journal in Joseph Smith papers on, I believe it was May 4th, 1842, is when this, uh, along with a few other men, leaders of the church, there was instruction given on the priesthood. And I'll dig into that here. But going to this quote, this is a, a strange quote to use because this is a third-hand account. It originates from the journal of L. John Nuttall, and his account was recorded in February of 1877, long after May 1842. 33, well, really, 30, oh, man, 35 years after, but possibly 33, if this is referring to the fullness, because we'll see that later this ceremony was not the fullness. But L. John Nuttall claimed to have heard it from Brigham Young. And Brigham Young claimed to have heard it from Joseph Smith Jr. So again, third hand, 30 plus years late, this quote is being given. Is it reliable? I don't think so. Because we never heard Brigham Young say this. He never recorded it. Joseph Smith never recorded it. He never said that it was not organized properly and that he did the best he could do. So in Joseph Smith papers, as I said, yeah, May 4th, 1842, this is what's recorded in the journal. In counsel in the president's and general offices with Judge Adams, Hiram Smith, Newell K. Whitney, William Marks, William Law, George Miller, Brigham Young, Heber C. Kimball, and Willard Richards, giving certain instructions concerning the priesthood, 
on the Aaronic priesthood. This is lesser priesthood. This is an endowment of the fullness of the priesthood, not even in 1842. And this wasn't in the temple. The temple wasn't finished. Anyway, continuing to the first, continuing through the day. Where is the fullness restored? Is it in 1842? Clearly not, because it's Aaronic priesthood. Is it in 1843? Brigham said that the fullness wasn't there. So when was it restored? Could have been after Joseph's death, I guess you may have to claim, because that's when ordinances were actually performed, starting in 1845. We'll get to that timeline here. But in Doctrine and Covenants, section 13, verse 1, this is when the Aaronic priesthood was restored. Again, we're going to revisit this blessing and promise at the time. Upon you, my fellow servants, in the name of Messiah, I confer the priesthood of Aaron, which holds the keys of the ministering of angels and of the gospel of repentance and of baptism by immersion for the remission of sins. And this shall never be taken again from the earth until the sons of Levi do offer again an offering unto the Lord in righteousness. In order to be accepted, right, to receive the covenant and gift of the Holy Ghost, if you're calling an election, you must give an offering. And this was promised to never be taken from the earth. We often think that the Melchizedek priesthood has to endure from Nauvoo till now because it was promised to never be taken. But no, it was the promise of the lesser priesthood conferred by John the Baptist to Joseph and Oliver. That was the only priesthood that ever had the promise of not being taken from the earth. But that is, in essence, a curse to never have the fullness of the priesthood until the righteous offerings are given. Again, it has to come from God. This higher, greater priesthood may be conferred, yes, but it's not received truly only by God. In section 124, verse 42, I will show unto my servant Joseph. Okay, get this. If we think that quote saying it's not arranged right, Brigham Young needs to take it, then that's completely throwing out this revelation given to Joseph. God says, I will show unto my servant Joseph all things pertaining to this house, the house of Nauvoo. All things. So if it's not arranged right, and supposedly Brigham is flaunting to other men that Joseph said to him, go take it further. Make it right. That's essentially saying Joseph didn't know all things pertaining to the house. And there were more things to be given. And I don't think that's true. Because Joseph would have been given all things. I don't think we can throw out this scripture for a third-hand, 30-plus-year-old account in a journal. Continuing, and the priesthood thereof. All things pertaining to the priesthood thereof, and the place whereon it shall be built. Do we believe the scriptures, or do we believe these polluted teachings that President Nelson seems to be promoting here? Because he has a tradition, a church, a face to save. He has to keep it all up. But the scriptures tell us otherwise. Are we seeing pure truth, pure doctrine, and pure revelation from the words of President Nelson? Is it a concern to me when I can see clearly that scripture contradicts what's being taught at the pulpit. Let's dig deeper into this. Joseph Smith papers have an abundance of information here. So again, going back into those journals, I went back in time from May 1842 to April on the 24th. This is when the Relief Society is being organized. On Sunday the 24th, this is preached on the hill near the temple concerning the building of the temple and pronounced a curse on the merchants and the rich who would not assist in building it. This was the problem with Zion, with Missouri. There were rich who would not send of their substance and come. And there were poor who just wanted to feed off of the rich. They wanted a free ride. 
So it wasn't working out. Not only that, but there were other issues as well. There were transgressions. There were things, political issues, people gathering too fast. Uh, we won't get into that, but he's, he's cursing the members, the merchants, the rich, who wouldn't help build the temple. So it seems to be not going as well as he hoped. On Thursday, the 28th, at 2 o'clock, it says, afternoon, met with the members of the Female Relief Society, and after presiding at the admission of many new members, gave a lecture on the priesthood. He's teaching the women about the priesthood, showing how the sisters would come in possession of the privileges and blessings and gifts of the priesthood. The women would have priesthood as well, and that the signs should follow them, such as healing the sick, laying on of hands, right? Women laying on hands, casting out devils, that they might attain unto these blessings by virtuous life and conversation and diligence in keeping all the commandments. He's teaching the women about the priesthood and how they can get it. It comes from God, right? They can get the gift of the Holy Ghost. They can see the Savior. They can enter into the presence of the Father, the fullness of His glory. He plainly taught it, just as Moses did. Yet he was taken out of the presence of them, the priesthood along with him. Now, on May 1st, 1842. This is Sunday. It says, preached in the grove on the keys of the kingdom, charity. The keys are certain signs and words. This is going to the endowment by which false spirits and personages may be detected from true, which cannot be revealed to the elders till the temple is completed. This is important. When was the temple completed? We'll get to that. But these, this true endowment cannot be revealed to the elders. The elders, specifically all the men of the church, but the 12 who claim to have received this endowment beforehand. But in 1842, it says, not till after it's completed. The temple was not completed. These things were not given in the temple. The rich can only get them. This is interesting. The rich can only get them in the temple. The reason why they had to build the temple, the saints were rich. And then he's cursing the rich. He's cursing the saints. Sure, there were a lot of people that were poor. They gave plentifully to the building up of the temple but then he says the poor may get them on the mountaintop as did moses do we really need a temple if we are poor going back to eser which is 10 in hebrew the seeing coming from repentance coming from being poor to see god we must be poor and repent now the poor monetarily that's just in similitude of poor in spirit if we are poor in spirit broken heart and contrite then we may truly repent and our offering is acceptable. This is all tying together. Do you see it? It's clear. It's plain and precious. The saints were rich and were commanded to build a temple because they weren't poor. They couldn't just go to the mountaintop. Where did Joseph receive these blessings? He received them in the wilderness, in nature, right? Without a temple. Moses did too. We saw that Melchizedek, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, all these men... They received the true authority and true blessings and promises, the covenant in nature from God himself. They didn't have to build a temple because they were poor, right? But the saints were cursed. They were rich. And in order to detach their hearts from the riches of the world, they were commanded to give it up to build the temple. The rich cannot be saved without charity, without giving to feed the poor. When and how God requires as well as building there are signs in heaven, earth, and hell. The elders must know them all to be endued, endowed with power to finish their work and prevent imposition. 
The devil knows many signs, but does not know the sign of the Son of Man or Jesus. No one can truly say he knows God until he has handled something, and these this can only be in the holiest of holies. In the presence of the Father, the presence of God, we are rich today. Are we just continuing to build temples ignorantly, thinking that it makes us poor, that it gets us the actual blessing? I think we're missing the mark. Where's the endowment, the true endowment? In the presence of the Father, the presence of God, we are rich today. Are we just continuing to build temples ignorantly, thinking that it makes us poor, that it gets us the actual blessing? I think we're missing the mark. Where's the endowment, the true endowment, the power, the finishing of this work? Have we prevented imposition? Joseph Smith papers here, April 28, going back to this sermon that Joseph Smith gave to the Relief Society. There's a, a couple interesting things here noted in the minutes, the minute book. The church is not now organized in its proper order. The church is out of order. We've read about this, we've talked about it. One mighty and strong must come and put the house back in order. It cannot be until the temple is completed. The order cannot return. The fullness of the priesthood can't come until the temple is completed. Not in 1842, not in 43, not in 44. The temple wasn't done. So when is this proper order coming back? President Smith continued by speaking of the difficulties he had to surmount ever since the commencement of the work in consequence of aspiring men, which he called great big elders. Who are the elders? The twelve, as he called them. Who had caused him much trouble, whom he had taught in the private council, but the more bold Greater truths were taught in public, yet these men in private claimed to have received the greater truths, and they would go forth into the world and proclaim the things he had taught them as their own revelations. And he said, the same aspiring disposition will be in this society, the Relief Society, and must be guarded against, that every person should stand and act in the place appointed, and thus sanctify the society and get it pure, that God may dwell among it, right? The daughters of Zion must be purified. He said he had been trampled underfoot by aspiring elders. Here's where the connection is to the twelve. For all were infected with that spirit. For instance, he, name, he names a couple here, but all were infected. Parley P. Pratt, Orson Pratt, Orson Hyde, Johnny Page, these were all twelve apostles. They had been aspiring, seeking the honors of men, the praise, the power, influence over men. But we know that power ought not to be maintained by virtue of the priesthood. Their calling has nothing to do with their power and influence over men. And Joseph is being trampled underfoot by their aspirations. All were infected. That includes Brigham, the president. That includes Heber. It includes every single one of them. He may as well say all of their names. Maybe these men were a little more obvious. They would not be exalted, but must run away as though the care and authority of the church were vested with them. He's prophesying here. They could not be exalted. He said, we had a subtle devil to deal with and could only curb him by being humble. He said, as he had this opportunity, he was going to instruct the society and point out the way for them to conduct that they might act according to the will of God that he did not know as he should have many opportunities of teaching them. This is getting ominous here, that they were going to be left to themselves. They would not long have him to instruct them that the church would not have his instruction long. This is two years before he's killed. 
and the world would not be troubled with him a great while and would not have his teachings. Joseph was going to be removed. He spoke of delivering the keys to this society and to the church. The keys of the kingdom are being delivered to the Relief Society. That according to his prayers, God had appointed him elsewhere. Joseph is saying he has somewhere else to be. He's going to be removed. He won't be around much longer to teach them. So here are the keys given to the Relief Society. He exhorted the sisters always to concentrate their faith and prayers for and place confidence in those who God has appointed. To honor whom God has placed at the head, God, who God has placed at the head to lead, not that men has placed. Who placed Brigham Young as president? It was the members of the church, not God. People say with that transfiguration that it was God that convinced the people to place him. But again, the priesthood comes from God himself, not from man. That we should arm them with our prayers, that the keys of the kingdom are about to be given to them, that they may be able to detect everything false. Can we detect the things that are false? I hope this is helping you. Is there pure truth, pure doctrine, and pure revelation here, even in this talk, in conference? I think there is pollution. Can we detect everything that is false, as well as to the elders, it says. So he's giving the keys to the elders also. He's, he's splitting the keys. He's dividing the keys. Relief Society and elders. We also know that others claim to have received ordination to be the next successor to him as the head. The society is to get instruction through the order which God has established, through the medium of those appointed to lead. And I now turn the key to you in the name of God, and this society shall rejoice, and knowledge and intelligence shall flow down from this time. If the fullness of the priesthood is being given, revelation and knowledge is abundant. Intelligence flows, it says. So where is the fruit of this? 1843, we saw an uptick, but we also saw compromised doctrine enter in that's what we have published now so really true revelation wasn't much of an uptick at all so again recapping the 12 are infected the church is out of order keys are given to relief society and to the 12 the 12 or the relief society is warned to detect everything that is false and revelation will flow well following the prophet's death president young oversaw the completion of the nauvoo temple and later built temples in the utah territory so now we get to the bottom of this. President Young oversaw the completion of the Nauvoo Temple. Was the Nauvoo Temple ever completed? Let's check out the BYU Library archives. Looking at the article on the Nauvoo Temple, it first says right there at the beginning and the end, it's sandwiched. Never fully finished. Is there any question? Was the Nauvoo Temple completed? No, never. The temple was set on fire by arsonists in 1848. The building was totally destroyed by 1850. Never fully finished. Doesn't get more clear than that. BYU Archives says right there. So did President Young really oversee the completion? We're going to see that he had a secret plan. Doctrine and Covenants, section 115, verse 12. Thus let them from that time forth labor diligently. Now, before I finish, this is relating to the Far West Temple, but this applies to every temple. This is the commandment. This is the definition of what it means to be completed. Until it shall be finished from the cornerstone thereof unto the top thereof, until there shall not anything remain that is not finished. Clear as day. Easy to understand. Right there. What does it mean for a temple to be finished? There's nothing remaining that is not finished. Simple definition, right? So the 
Navi Temple does not meet this definition. It was not fully finished. So also in talking about Utah temples, we see here there are six quote-unquote pioneer temples. There's the Nauvoo, there's, or sorry, the Kirtland first, the Nauvoo, then St. George, then Logan, then Manti, and Salt Lake. These were all in the days of Brigham Young. But he didn't see the completion of any of these temples other than uh, Kirtland, Nauvoo, and St. George. So St. George was finished in his very last year of life. But it was struck by lightning the next year in 1878 that led to a major repair needed on the steeple. Let's dig into the journal of Wilfred Woodruff. He says that Brigham Young stated, I do not want to quite finish this temple, talking about the Salt Lake Temple, for there will not be any temple finished until the one is finished in Jackson County. This is from August 23rd, 1862. So this is near the end of Brigham's life. He's saying to Wilford Woodruff that no temple will be finished until the one is finished in Jackson County, Missouri, pointed out by Joseph Smith. Keep this a secret to yourself, lest some may be discouraged. So he's purposefully not finishing the temples. It was with Nauvoo. It was with St. George. It was with Salt Lake, except he didn't get to oversee the finish of Salt Lake. And I believe Wilford Woodruff and John Taylor quite possibly could have fully finished those temples, the Manti, Logan, and Salt Lake. But this is clearly saying he was trying to keep it a secret. We're not fully finishing the temples. It'll look finished. We'll go in and do the work, but it won't actually be finished. There will be a small part remaining unfinished. He is breaking the commandment of God that we just read in section 115. He's not adhering and hearkening to the word of God. In section 124, verse 31 and 32, I command you, all ye my saints, to build a house unto me, and I grant unto you a sufficient time to build a house unto me. Going back to Nauvoo. And during this time, your baptisms shall be acceptable unto me. But behold, at the end of this appointment, your baptisms for your dead shall not be acceptable unto me. And if you do not these things at the end of the appointment you don't build this house you don't finish it ye shall be rejected as a church with your dead saith the lord your god the church is facing total complete and utter rejection the living and the dead they have to hearken to the words and brigham here is conspiring to not finish the temple in its entirety until jackson county is finished that makes me wonder are there temples today is every temple left with a portion unfinished or did John Taylor and Wilfred Woodruff ignore that and actually finish every single part? But even still, was the fullness of the priesthood restored with John Taylor or Wilfred Woodruff? I don't think there's a testimony of that. Let's keep going. Further in section 124, verses 45 through 49, uh, we're going to point out the warnings that God is giving to the saints in the Nauvoo era. If my people will hearken unto my voice and unto the voice of my servants whom I have appointed, not the, the servants that men have appointed, but that God has appointed to lead my people. Behold, verily I say unto you, they shall not be moved out of their place. We've gone over this before, but I want to reinforce this because it's so important. This is a promise given. They shall not be moved out of their place, out of Nauvoo, and eventually out of Missouri. They will be restored. But if they will not hearken to my voice, nor unto the voice of these men whom I have appointed, they shall not be blessed because they pollute mine holy ground and mine holy house mine holy ordinances 
and charters and my holy words which I give unto them. And it shall come to pass that if you build a house unto my name and do not do these things that I say, even with the qualifier on the house, but they don't do everything, I will not perform the oath which I make unto you. If you don't actually finish the house, I will not perform the oath. Neither fulfill the promise which ye expect at my hand, saith the Lord. The promise to not be moved out of their place. The promise to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Receive all of these revelations. Receive salvation. The promise of eternal life. God will not fulfill these. For instead of blessings ye by your own works bring cursings, wrath, indignation. These are of the lesser priesthoods, right? And judgment upon your own heads by your follies and by all your abominations which you practice before me, saith the Lord. The people are clearly going to be performing these works, but not bringing blessings, bringing cursings. And these are done before God. These are the commandments of men, having the form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. This is what we are facing today. All of these things are upon our heads, upon the church, because we were moved out of our place. We do not possess the land of inheritance. We are scattered among the world. We are in the wilderness. Last verse 49, Verily, verily, I say unto you, that when I give a commandment to any of the sons of men to do a work unto my name, and those sons of men go with all their might and with all they have to perform that work, and cease not their diligence, and their enemies come upon them and hinder them from performing that work, behold, it behoveth me to require that work no more at the hands of those sons of men, but to accept of their offerings. Okay, I actually have to cut it. Uh, short. So there's 10 minutes left on the video. I, I uh, will post the link in the description of the podcast for you to go find that, to listen to that. I just, I can only have certain amount of time in a clip, uh, and I'm getting really close to that. So uh, I'm just going to cut it short here. I encourage you to go and take a look at that uh, that video. We're at 53 minutes and 7 seconds. And there's one hour and three minutes and 57 seconds in the video. And then this is only part six. There's other parts, too. So I encourage you to go take a look at them as well. Anyway, so thank you for listening. Okay. Yeah, I really suggest going and taking a, uh, a watch. Watch, look at the graphs, look at all the, the quotes that he puts on screen. Pretty good stuff. Um, so I wanted to address a couple of things. Now, Joseph Smith taught that the fullness of the priesthood was given to the major prophets in the, you know, in, uh, before this last dispensation, going back into the Old Testament times. And the Father gave the fullness to those prophets on mountaintops. Now, Joseph Smith received the priesthood from Peter, James, and John, the first order of the Melchizedek priesthood. It was not on a mountaintop, and it was not by the hand of the Father, which is further evidence that the Melchizedek priesthood, uh, the first order of the Melchizedek priesthood is not the fullness of the priesthood, which the Father himself gives, which was what the Father desired to give the saints in Nauvoo. He wanted to endow them with power, the power of the fullness of the priesthood, which the ancient prophets had and which God gives individually upon the mountaintop. 
but he wanted to give it to the saints as part of Zion's redemption that they might have uh, been given the endowment of power or the endowment of the fullness of the priesthood. Okay. Now, when President Nielsen brings up these quotes that uh, were written down in 1877 by John Nuttall, uh, I just want to say before I say what I'm about to say, because it's about to probably anger the Nuttall family, and I'm not trying to be a jerk, but I am a descendant of Henry VIII and a whole bunch of the other royals. Like, I'm a a direct descendant of Charlemagne, I have a lot of interesting, really kind of cool genealogy. But does what Henry VIII did make me a jerk? No. I don't like what Henry VIII did, but his crap doesn't make me crap. You know? So what I'm about to say about John Nuttall, I'm not trying to say against the Nuttall family. But here is the the problem. John Nuttall made this stuff up, wrote it in his journal in 1877. It's the first instance that we find of this quote that he wrote down that he said Brigham Young told him or uh, Joseph Smith or whatever. Okay. Nuttall was the secretary of Brigham Young and John Taylor. Brigham Young and John Taylor had symptoms of arsenic poisoning. They exhumed their corpses and they tested their corpses and they found arsenic poisoning, which was the cause of death, Brigham Young and John Taylor. So then they went to find where in the world they were getting the arsenic ingested because you have to ingest arsenic for it to do its job. And the church has Brigham Young and John Taylor's coffee cups. Now, the word of wisdom with the coffee being hot drink, whatever, that, that wasn't actually uh, in place until Heber J. Grant made it into a commandment. But the original revelation on the word of wisdom was, not given by way of commandment, but as a word of wisdom, which, which is true. Heber C., not Heber C. Kimball, uh, Heber J. Grant said that the heavens were his brass to him, and he could not receive a revelation of God, which is really interesting because he changed how priesthood was conferred or not conferred from eight, uh, 1921 to 1957 when David O. McKay changed it back. And, um, hold on, I'm having a little bit of issue here with my phone overheating. All right, but um, he did a bunch of stuff that he shouldn't have done. Like, I don't want to get into it. I could spend a couple of radio programs, three hours apiece, just going over all the shenanigans of Heber J. Grant and all the, the stuff that he did. Stuff that when he presented things to Joseph F. Smith, the sixth president of the church. Joseph F. Smith threatened to excommunicate Heber J. Grant and Charles Penrose, who presented that, you know, we, we shouldn't confer priesthood. We should only ordain to offices. You know? Well, he, uh, Joseph F. Smith dies, and Heber J. Grant becomes the seventh president of the church, and he just does what he wants to do. 
which is basically how it happens. You know? May I interject for one moment? Hold on. Russell M. Nelson has uh, had a problem with the word Mormon and being called a Mormon forever and ever and ever. Gordon B. Hinckley said it was a blessing to be called a Mormon, and as soon as this guy gets in charge, he says it's a it's a feather in the devil's cap. Go ahead, Kim. Um, I just need an ETA to the spur. Uh, I am I am about ready to drop off Barrel Hill. I'm going to Lila. I'll let you know as soon as I get loaded. Okay. It'll probably be about an hour and fifteen minutes. Maybe, okay. well, maybe not that long. I don't know. I'll let you know. I, I know when I get loaded how long it takes. I don't know where I'm at, how long it'll take to get back there. So. Okay. Okay, so um, so anyway, uh, yeah, Brigham Young had morning coffee. In fact, on the, uh, the exodus out of Nauvoo, which was not commanded by God, by the way, and they were not kicked out of Nauvoo because of persecution, because a lot of other Mormons stayed in Nauvoo. It did not go into the wilderness, and they were just fine. That's a lie that Brigham Young told. But, um, but part of the rations that Brigham Young told the people to have was like a couple of pounds of coffee per person, Okay, so Brigham Young and John Taylor had their coffee. Now, who made the coffee for Brigham Young and John Taylor? John Nuttall. And what did he serve them that coffee in? Coffee cups. Arsenic leached into the porcelain of those coffee cups. And they tested it, and the arsenic is in the coffee cup. So it was John Nuttall who made them their, po- their coffee every day, and it was John Nuttall who murdered, through arsenic poisoning, Brigham Young and John Taylor. Because there's some stuff that is going on in the church. Because guess what? The devil, he wants to get his claws into things. And he has sent in moles in the church. And I think it was uh, Ezra Taft Benson when he he was talking about like you know basically the new world order and all of the crap that was going on, somebody uh, that Kevin Kraut knows said, "Hey, aren't you afraid that they're going to come after you?" And he 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 said, "Nope, I'm more afraid of the men in that building than I am of of the Illuminati or whatever it was." He was pointing at the church office building, which wasn't the big old massive one that you see. You know, today it was the old office building, but whatever. Because there are dark forces in control of the LDS church. And there was there was good ones and there was bad ones. And I don't know what's going on now, but I am pretty sure that Hello? it is the bad ones that have taken over. Yeah, go ahead, Kim. There's 60 seconds left, so if anybody wants to call into the live portion of the program, they have to call 917-889-8827 to catch on to the ending part of the program. And I just wanted to let you know. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Okay. I'm wrapping it up. Uh, Kim's on the host line, so she gets to hear all that stuff. I'm not. I'm on a guest line. All right. So Nuttall murdered 
Brigham Young and John Taylor. And we get that quote from Nuttall. All right, so let's see, finished. Oh, the, the Nauvoo Temple was never finished. And, like, people will say, well, yeah, it was, uh, whatever. But wh- I want to ask you something. This is what I'm going to wrap up on today. DNC section 124, Jesus says, build a temple in my name, whose name? Jesus Christ's name, whereby the Most High can come, that he, not Jesus, can restore the fullness of the priesthood, which is lost unto you. That he, he, the Father. When did the Father ever come to the temple? Never. When did the Shekinah glory of God ever come to the Nauvoo temple? Never. When did an angel or Jesus Christ or any other resurrected being ever come to the temple? Never. The fullness of the priesthood was never restored. The endowment of power was never given. And according to Jesus Christ, if they didn't do what they were told, the church would be rejected with their dead, which happened. They were rejected from receiving the fullness of the priesthood and going on. They were basically damned. So anyway, with all that being said, we'll end the radio program. Thank you, Kim, for letting me know. And hopefully, Emmett, can you uh, cue the music if, if you have the, uh, the thing on? Let me know before you do it, Emmett. Yeah, I have it on. Um, we're trying to get out of the car, though, so it's really noisy. Hold on. Okay, we'll just mute it. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Emmett, go ahead and cue the music whenever you're ready. Thank you for listening. Thank you.